Uh, but if you remember a couple weeks ago, when we had the introduction to the series on Advent, God has come, we learned that God is transcendent and God is imminent. These are theological words, but they're worth learning. When we say that God is transcendent, we know that he is above all things. He spoke all things into existence. He doesn't need anything in order to stay alive. There was never a time where he was not. He doesn't need to eat or drink to stay alive like we do. He just simply is. He holds the world in his hand. And if he ever stopped holding the world in his hands, the world would cease to exist. God is above everything. But God is also imminent. God is also involved in his creation. God could have created Adam and Eve and not descended to them, not entered into a relationship with them. He could have had a relationship with them. <clears throat> Excuse me. He could have created them and just never revealed to them that he existed. That's a possibility. God could have done that, but that's not what God did. God entered into a relationship with Adam and Eve. He promised them life if they would keep his commandments. But of course they didn't. And we all know this story. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They fell. They rejected God. They rejected his offer of life. They brought sin into the world. They brought death and destruction along with that sin. And God could have. He would have been within his rights to just end everything right there. He promised them the day that you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. And they didn't die. Genesis 3 lists out the curses that God has given to mankind. There's pain in childbirth. I've witnessed that. haven't experienced it, but I've witnessed that. There's difficulty in work. The ground is difficult to till and to bring food from now. But in the middle of God's curses on Adam and Eve, there was a promise. That promise is that one of Eve's descendants, and she probably thought it was going to be her son, but one of Eve's descendants that we now know is Jesus Christ would finally stomp the serpent to death. One of Eve's descendants would bring about the restoration of God's good creation. And that thread is the thread that we're tracking through the Old Testament and into the New Testament for the series of Advent. Advent means coming. The period of Advent for Christians is a time of waiting. We look back to the Old Testament when they waited for their Messiah to come. And we also today, as New Testament believers, we look forward to the day when Christ comes in full. We know, and this is kind of the, the theme for the series, we know that the story of the Bible is the story of God pursuing a people to enter into relationship with him. That's what the Bible is. Sometimes in our minds we think that, you know, the Bible is just basic instructions before leaving earth. That's an acronym you may have heard. We may think that it's God's handbook for living. But the Bible is, above all, a story of God looking for a people to bring that people back to him. To reverse the curse that happened in Genesis chapter 3. To finally defeat sin and death and evil by bringing a people towards him into relationship. We also know that the coming of Jesus Christ is the pinnacle of that story. It's the very peak of it. We know how God is transcendent, yet God is imminent. God is above all, yet God is with us. But the greatest example of God being with us is found in the person of Jesus Christ. It is that baby in a manger. The great God Almighty come down, taking on human flesh to be with us 
to live as one of us, to suffer, die like one of us, and to rise again for all of us. That is the story of the Bible. What we're going to focus on this morning is one specific aspect of that story. It's a key aspect of that story. That story, or that aspect, is the story of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham to form a relationship with him. And a lot of the time, we kind of forget about Genesis 1 through 11, right? We have Genesis 1 and 2, where God creates the world. Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve sin. God curses everything. And then we know we have a couple kids' Bible stories about Cain and Abel, and there's Noah, and there's something about the Tower of Babel, and that's all just filler. The story of Genesis 1 through 11 is the story of how humanity keeps falling after the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve brought sin into the world, and that sin didn't just affect them, it affected their kids. There was strife between Cain and Abel. The first murder happened because Adam and Eve brought sin into the world. Eventually, the Bible kind of condenses a couple thousand years worth of history into just a chapter or so. But the, they spread throughout the world, and the world became so wicked that God needed to wipe out the world and save Noah and his family, eight people. But that didn't even fix everything. So even though Noah was a righteous man, just being a righteous man wasn't enough to reverse the curse because Noah and all of his descendants Fell. There was something innate in the state of humanity that needed to be fixed. Noah and all of his descendants spread out into the world. They, they built the Tower of Babel, a monument to human independence from God. And so God cursed them. God confused their languages and they spread throughout the world. So the world was full at the time of Abraham. The world was full of all of these nations who rejected God, who went their own ways even though God had previously wiped them out, sent them a warning, even though God um, had picked Noah, the righteous man that they were all descended from, none of that was enough to fix things. So when we get to the end of Genesis chapter 11, right before the story of Abraham, we see a world that has completely fallen. It is filled with nations who are opposed to God. And then God comes to Abraham to enter into a covenant with him. Now, real quick, a covenant is defined by two things. That's one of those, another one of those theological words that maybe you kind of know what it means, maybe you don't. But for those of you who don't know what a covenant is, think of marriage. Marriage is the most common covenant that we know of. It's not a contract. It is not a legal agreement where we're constantly looking for loopholes. Oh, you violated your end of the deal, so I'm free from mine, and we're just going to go our own ways. That's, that's, not, that's not the idea. It's a covenant. It is built on relationship, and it's made up of promises from one party of the covenant to the other. I'm married. You can tell that by the ring on my finger. And when my wife and I were married, we didn't go to the lawyer's office and hammer out a big old contract about you know, all the ins and outs of our marriage. We made vows to each other. We promised each other things. We're going to love each other in sickness and in health. We're going to be there no matter what for each other. We're going to forgive each other. We're going to be committed to each other. It's a relationship built on mutual promises. And so in Genesis 12, and also in Genesis chapter 15 and Genesis chapter 17, God comes to Abraham and makes a covenant with him. God reaches out 
for the first really, really big time in the Bible after Adam and Eve to uh, enter into a relationship with a human being. God reaches out to Abraham. And God, because this is a covenant, he promises a few things to Abraham. He promises that a great nation would come from him. And careful that we don't miss the backdrop of the previous two chapters of Genesis 10 and 11. The world is filled with all of these nations who have rejected God. But God comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to make a nation from you. A nation that is from me and about me. God tells Abraham, I'm going to be their God and they will be my people. Abraham is going to have come from him a people of God who are about worshiping him. God also promises Abraham that God is going to bless him. God is going to richly pour out his blessings on the person of Abraham. And this is notable. This is notable because for the first time since the Garden of Eden, God's going to bless someone. God poured out his blessings in the Garden of Eden. And when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they rejected those blessings. But God comes once again to Abraham and he says, I'm not done blessing the people of this world. Adam and Eve sinned. Yes, they screwed it up. Yes, but not permanently. It still can be undone. Abraham, I'm going to bless you. Not only am I going to bless you, I'm going to bless the nations that come from you. I'm going to bless the nation that comes from you, and I'm going to bless all the nations of the world in and through you. And Abraham didn't know it at the time, but the nations would be blessed because of the person of Jesus Christ. See, Abraham would have a descendant named Jesus. And Jesus would come to die and offer salvation for the entire world. The nations would be blessed through Abraham. God also promised Abraham that he would inherit a land. When God first comes to Abraham, Abraham's living in a pagan land. He's probably a pagan himself. God just shows up to Abraham and he says, Abraham, get up. I'm going to show you a land. He didn't tell him where it was. He just said, Abraham, let's go. Let's travel. I'm going to show you a land, I'm going to bring it to you, and I'm going to give it to you for a possession. Can you imagine if God told you that? If God just appears to you at night and says, hey, get up, pack your car, you're going. Where am I going, God? I'll tell you. I'll show you a place. Just start driving. I'll provide for you. That's really hard to imagine for us who value security and safety. But Abraham followed God. Abraham believed God. And he obeyed God. So God promised Abraham a few things. He promised him a great nation, a number of descendants. One thing I didn't mention earlier, and I should have, Abraham, when God called him, was an old man. He was 75 years old, and he didn't have any natural kids. So for Abraham to believe that God would provide a nation from him, he didn't have any kids. How was a nation supposed to come from him? But Abraham believes God. So God promised Abraham a great nation. God promised Abraham blessing. God promised Abraham a land for him and his descendants. And God required a couple things of Abraham as well. God required that Abraham circumcise himself and his household and all of his descendants. That's in Genesis 17. And this could be its own sermon, maybe on its own day. We'll dive into this. But circumcision was supposed to, it was, it was a sign of the covenant. So just as this ring that I'm wearing is a sign of the marriage that I'm in, the covenant relationship that I am in, so circumcision was supposed to mark out those who were descendants of Abraham, those who were part of this great nation. Those were God's people. 
And so God required Abraham, circumcise yourself, circumcise your entire household. Every male child that comes after you, circumcise, because they are part of my family. And God also required something that sometimes we don't focus on as much. But God required faith of Abraham. God required that Abraham believe his promises. God required that Abraham trust him and follow after him. You see, when God appeared to Abraham, Abraham could have said, God, that's ridiculous. I don't know where I'm going. I'm not going to go to this land that you promised me. I'm 75 years old. I'm not going to have a kid. So I'm just going to stay put where I am. I'm just going to keep living the life where I am. Abraham could have done that, but that's not what happened. Abraham believed God. Genesis 15 verse 6 tells us that Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. See, the righteousness that Adam and Eve had that, that left the world when they sinned, we saw through, from Genesis 1 through 11 how unrighteousness filled the world. But this one man who was an unrighteous descendant of Noah and Adam, we've seen how the condition of man is unchanged through the flood, how it's innate in humankind. We are all unrighteous. But righteousness is credited to Abraham because Abraham believes God. Those are the two requirements that God makes of Abraham. Circumcise yourself and believe me, trust me. It's worth pausing here and asking ourselves, what is belief? What does it mean to believe something? It's one of those words that we talk about a lot. It's one of those Christian-y words that gets brought up a lot. But sometimes I think that we might lose what it actually means. What does it mean to believe? What does it mean to have faith? What does it mean to trust? Those are all kind of the same idea. Sometimes I think that we think as a culture that having faith is merely being spiritual. You know, you kind of believe in God. Maybe you go to church once in a while. You're just generally a good person. You have some, you have some faith. You're a person of faith. That's not what faith is. Sometimes we think, especially in a church where we stand up and we say the Apostles' Creed every week. And don't get me wrong, I love that we say the Apostles' Creed every week. It's incredible. We say every week that I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe all of these things. But simply standing up and saying that we believe them, simply verbally agreeing to a fact, is not faith. Faith is something else. Faith is deeper. There's an illustration that kind of gets used a lot in Christian circles in this conversation. And I realize that it may be a little bit overdone, but it's a really good illustration, so I'm going to use it anyway, and I hope that's okay. There was a man named Charles Blondin back in the 1850s. He was British, uh, but he came to the United States where he's most well-known. Charles Blondin was a tightrope walker. He was known for stringing up tightropes above the Niagara Gorge and the river above Niagara Falls and walking across it. These tightropes were 1,100 feet across, almost a fifth of a mile, 160 feet high, above near certain death of drowning, being crushed by rocks by falling over one of the greatest falls in the world. And he would tightrope across them. And yeah, he would do the thing where he would hold out the stick and walk across it, 
But then, because this guy was crazy, he would throw the stick away and walk across it without it. He would carry things across. He was known to take food into the middle of this tightrope, above a raging river, upstream of a massive waterfall, sit down, cook himself breakfast, eat it, finish, clean it up, and go to the other side. The dude was crazy. He was also incredibly skilled. He would take wheelbarrows across, empty wheelbarrows, wheelbarrows full of rocks, just to show what he could do. He was known for doing these shows. At one point in one of these shows, he stopped and asked the crowd, said, how many of you people believe that I can carry a human being across on my back? And the crowd goes nuts, right? Can you imagine if someone said that? Of course they want to see that. That's the height of entertainment. What's better than one guy walking across a tightrope? A guy carrying another guy on his back across a tightrope. Can you imagine the spectacle? So the crowd goes wild. They all raise their hands. They say, yes, we believe that you can do it. So he asked the crowd, all right, who's my first volunteer? And the crowd goes silent. Now, to be fair, I don't blame the crowd at all. There's no way I'm getting on his back to walk across the tightrope and, you know, who knows what's going to happen to you because it just takes one fall. You have to make it across every single time, but if you just fail once, that's all that it takes for everything to be over. So there's no way I would get on his back. But this points out the difference between verbally agreeing to a fact, yes, I believe that Charles Blondin can carry a human being across the falls and back and have everything, to be, and have everything be okay. I believe that. But it's a much different proposition if you're actually going to get on his back and let you carry him across. So faith isn't just merely you know, some idea of spirituality. Faith is not merely standing up and confessing the Apostles' Creed, saying, I believe in God the Father Almighty. Faith is allowing that reality to influence your heart. Belief, faith, is acting as if something is true. Belief is acting as if something is true. It took faith for Abraham to leave his homeland, to follow God, to enter into a covenant with God. Abraham had to believe that God would miraculously provide him a son. Abraham had to believe that God would fulfill his promises, and he did. God counted it to Abraham as righteousness. One of the questions that was debated in the New Testament, and this is where we're going to this is where we're going to finish, even though we could spend really a huge sermon series on Abraham. Maybe we'll do that sometime. But the question is raised in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, in the book of Galatians. Who are the people of God? What does it mean to be one of the people of God? You see, there was a group of Christians, really. They were called Judaizers. They said that in order to really be a Christian... You have to circumcise yourself. So if you are a Gentile who wasn't circumcised because the Gentiles didn't, they weren't circumcised, only the Jews were. If you were a Gentile who wasn't circumcised and you wanted to come be a Christian, you had to get circumcised in order to come and be a part of this group of people. In order to be a Christian, you first had to be a Jew. Paul writes against this very strongly in the book of Romans, in the book of Galatians. 
Paul makes it very clear that there are people who are circumcised on the outside. They are part of God's covenant people, right? They are descendants of Abraham. They are set apart by the law. They're circumcised on the outside, but their hearts are not circumcised. They're ethnically Jewish, but in reality, they don't have the faith of Abraham. What really sets apart the people of God, Paul writes, is faith, is belief in God. Paul writes this, Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Not those who are circumcised here. Those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So Paul looks back to that promise that was made to Abraham, right? I'm going to, a great nation is going to come from you. I'm going to bless the world through this nation. According to Paul, when God says, I'm going to bless the entire world, it means that the entire world can come in. And the dividing line is not those who have been circumcised and those who have not. It's not those who are Jewish and those who are not. The dividing line is between those who have faith, those who believe, and those who do not. So there are those who are circumcised, but they don't have faith. Their hearts aren't circumcised. They are not part of the people of God. There are people who are not circumcised. They are not ethnically Jewish, but they do have faith. So they are part of the people of God. That is the great nation that God promised Abraham. The people of God marked out not by circumcision, not by Jewish identity, but by faith. It's the church. Paul goes on, so those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is Romans chapter 4. Verse number 22, this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. We talked about this. Abraham had faith, and that faith was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. We, as descendants of Adam and Eve, are unrighteous. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we went through Psalm 14. There's none righteous, no, not one. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, death passed on the entire world. Unrighteousness passed on the entire world. Sin is a part of every single one of us. And in order to be righteous, in order to be counted as one of the people of God, we have to believe And when I say we have to believe, I don't mean that we have to come to church and confess a creed, although those are both incredibly important things. I mean that we have to live out our lives as if that is true. We are called to believe, Romans 4.24, in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. It is one thing to confess that Jesus Christ has died and risen again. It is another thing 
to live out our lives as if that reality is true. If Jesus Christ really has died for our sins, then our sins are forgiven. Then we don't need to earn our way to heaven. We don't have to do anything to get to God. It's paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And if it really is true that a human being died on a cross but did not stay dead, if it really is true that he rose again from the dead bodily, that there is a grave empty, that Jesus Christ's human body is alive today, just as our human bodies are alive today. If that really is true, well, then that changes everything, doesn't it? So I ask you, Christian, what, what do you believe? In, in your very heart of heart, the heart that flows out into your actions, the heart that flows out from you, what do you believe? Do you believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Does it change your life? Or is it merely some outward formality that you confess on a Sunday morning and then go home and remain unchanged? Scripture is the story of how God is changing the world through a people that he has set aside and pursuing. That people is the people who have faith. We sang a song growing up. I'm not going to sing it for you this morning, like another song I sang growing up a few weeks ago. Um, but Father Abraham had many sons, right? You know, you do the little dance thing. Um, again, not doing that this morning. But Father Abraham had many sons. I am one of them, and so are you. Because what separates out Abraham's family from everyone else? What separates out the people of God from everyone else? What separates out those who God will redeem from everyone else is not an ethnic marker like circumcision. It's faith. And so when we gather here together as people of faith who are united in a body, defined by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we gather as the children of Abraham because God has not let his creation slip away from him. God comes to us. He descends to us in Genesis chapter 12. He reaches out. He promises Abraham. He says, hey, listen, there's going to be a great nation that comes from you. And above all, and Abraham didn't know this, and Eve didn't know this at the time, but there was going to be an individual who would come, who would bless all of the nations, just as God promised Abraham. There was an individual who would come who would stomp the head of the, ser of the serpent, stomp the head of the devil, reverse the curse, have victory over sin and death itself. And that person, God himself, comes down to us as a baby in a manger. Not to merely be cute, not to be a story that we tell, but he came down to die for us. He came down to rise again from the dead, and he came down and praised God for this. He will come down once again to restore this world for himself. The sin that Adam and Eve brought into this world is not over, but it will be someday. God is going to fix everything through Jesus Christ. So let us rejoice in that today.